Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hey, hello and welcome everyone. We're ready to to kick things off. Um, Welcome to this LSE Festival online session, How to Manage Transition in Turbulent Times, part of our Skills for a Fast-Changing World series hosted by LSE Online. In this series, we invite LSE experts to discuss research trends in their field about professional skills we need for success. My name is Emma. I am the head of the LSE Online team. LSE Online makes LSE's world-leading teaching and research accessible to a global audience. We provide a comprehensive portfolio of online programs to equip you and your organization with the knowledge and skills to advance in in an ever-changing world. Today's event forms part of the LSE Festival People and Change, which has been taking place all week. We've had some great events, so hopefully some of you have been able to join them. And this will end tomorrow, Saturday, the 17th of June. The festival this year explores how change affects people and how people affect change. The event is being recorded and we will hopefully be making this available as a video or podcast afterwards, subject to us having no technical difficulties. Um, while we wait for everyone to arrive, we'd love to hear where you are joining from us from in the world. So if you can just drop that in, in the chat, that would be really interesting. Um, today, we are welcoming Dr. Katarina Gliniadaki for our last LSE Festival online skills session. Katarina is a teaching fellow at the School of Public Policy at LSE, um, as well as a tutor for our online course, Risk and Crisis Management. She holds a PhD in European Studies from the European Institute of LSE. Um, if you have any questions during the event you'd like to ask Katerina, please do post them, post them into the Q&A box um, and we will try to get to, through as many as we can towards the end of the event. Um, okay, so without further ado, I will hand over to Katerina. Enjoy, everybody. Um, Thank you very much, Emma, for the introduction. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for um, different parts of the world, as it seems. Um, I would start by sharing my slides. Um, So as Emma mentioned, I will be discussing today uh, uh, how to handle change in turbulent times. Um, I will focus on changes that individuals and organizations undergo while also uh, being in a broader environment of, of instability and perhaps of crisis as well. And I will try to uh, both uh, mention and discuss things and ideas to think about, but also kind of bring in bits and pieces of practical advice. Uh, for this talk, I'll be drawing from the online course, uh, LSE course on risk and crisis management. Uh, I will need to say here that the conveners of this course is uh, doc, uh, Professor Mar- Martin Lodge and Dr. Uh, Andrea Manikin. So some of the ideas I'll uh, discuss today are their ideas as well. Uh, and I also draw examples from my own research in migration management in different countries, primarily Germany, but also Greece and, and most recently uh, Senegal as well. So let me start by defining the key terms here. Uh, What do we mean by transition? Um, There are obviously different ways and different meanings of of such um, um, umbrella words, but for this discussion today, I will focus on on changes, whether these are changes we have chosen or they have come without our choice. Um, Think changes that we like or 
um, we don't necessarily like or changes that we expected or they came um, they came without our will necessarily. And uh, by turbulent times, I mean um, the broader uh, environment that could be unstable, it could be uncertain, and it could also affect uh, both organizations, but also individuals um, in different ways. Uh, there are four aspects I would like to cover today. These are anticipation, sense-making, response, and learning. And I will explain each of them. So in terms of anticipation, um, I would start here by mentioning a quote, or we have all heard, and it sounds a bit like a truism, but it's, uh, it's important to remember uh, as a starting point, especially, which is that the only constant in life is change. And it's true that um, human societies have come where they are today because they have evolved over the years and um, change has been an integral part of, of, of humanity um, for hundreds and thousands and millions of years. So it is continue, it is like it will continue to be so and it's likely to remain to the case uh, in the years to come. So uh, with that in mind, it'd be really helpful uh, to have awareness of, of events or um, uh, things that are changing around the world that may or may not affect us today directly, but they might will in the near future. Um, so there are different categories of changes that I would like to, to uh, talk about now. And one of them could be what I call here ambiguous changes. So there are events like the AI advancement that uh, it's been discussed a lot this, these days. And we don't know what this, this new thing will bring to us. It could be uh, positive changes that down the line and could be a negative or the scary changes in the future, or it could be both. And that's, that's remain, that remains to be seen. Uh, and that's something we, we need to be aware of as, as time passes. There are also other categories of changes, what we call hazards in the course. Uh, an example of this would be the conflict in Sudan. Uh, it seems now as a um, conflict within the country, but it could have implications in different regions and in different um, populations. So there has already been a, a displacement of 1.2 million people. Um, there are dangers for, for broader instability in the region. Uh, neighboring Chad is uh, already um, a country to watch for. And, and that's something to, to keep in mind because changes will definitely be negative. The question is how big they will be and how soon they will come about. And there's also the category of creeping crisis. And a classic example of this would be climate change where things are changing very slowly. And we don't necessarily notice as things are changing. And we don't necessarily think that these changes are affecting us today. Um, and some parts of the world may be affected more than others, but in time, all of us are likely to be affected and um, in, in very serious ways as well. So it's important to have a broader awareness of what is happening in the world and, and, and an alertness, I would say as well. But it's also important to be self-aware and to see where we stand and to have a clarity in terms of our own opinions and values and identities on key issues, especially when there are issues that are politicized and highly controversial like migration. Because when we do have an understanding, when, if and when a time comes when we 
uh, come across unprecedented circumstances and we have to make ad hoc decisions, these decisions will be informed decisions. Uh, and this is what we um, want to maximize uh, to the extent that it's possible. And I would like to bring here an example of uh, climate change in the Sahel region in Africa. So the picture at the top right is a picture from last August in Dakar, the capital of Senegal. Uh, I worked and lived there for over a year and I was there throughout the rain season last year. Uh, I can tell you from personal experience, it was very, um, it, it was a difficult experience. Uh, people's lives were affected. Uh, it was really difficult to go from point A to point B. Uh, it was impossible to take a taxi. And I was lucky enough to live on the fourth floor and uh, to at least have some safety inside my uh, my own flat. But that was not the case for a lot of people. There was a lot of internal displacement. And um, things were quite difficult overall. Uh, and of course, there's a lack of in infrastructure there and other reasons as well. But there's um, the locals were talking about uh, the situation getting worse and worse every year. And that's only one aspect of, um, of climate change because actually most of the months during the year, um, the climate is very dry and very, very hot. And um, different countries and regions within Sahel are affected differently by this, but there has been already a knowledge that these weather changes are um, causing people to have to move. Uh, there's a scarcity of resources, a scarcity of water, um, and that also causes conflict and political instability, or it exacerbates the existing situation in, in some occasions. And while there is ongoing displacement, um, we don't know how this will affect future migration flows. And I wouldn't be surprised if we had more um, as climate as refugees and asylum seekers in Europe um, and the UK in the, in the years to come. So that's an example of a situation that seems very far and uh, both geographically and in terms of uh, time from where we are today, but it's actually not that far as uh, one might think. Uh, the second aspect I'd like to discuss now is the idea of sense-making. And by that, I mean here, um, taking in new information, processing it, organizing the ideas in our heads and understanding it. Uh, and that's the case when, especially when a new event happens that for us is unprecedented, and it's really important to have the tools um, conceptually to, to manage this event. And the first concept um, that we also discuss in the course is the idea of healthy skepticism. And what I would like to mention first is um, being able to distinguish between opinions and facts, and to also face the facts and face reality, accept reality as it is. I mean, we've seen in recent years with um, um, the Brexit or the pandemic or the election of uh, populist politicians in different parts of the world. Uh, in cases, especially, for example, with the pandemic, when politicians uh, refused to accept reality early on, uh, they didn't really manage to handle uh, and eliminate the, the effects and the negative consequences of the pandemic so well. Um, so it's important to, to understand what are facts and what aren't and to accept the facts. But it's also important to understand that we can never have full information about something. Uh, as humans, we will also have biases and we'll have blind spots. That means there will be a lot of things that we don't know, but also a lot of things that we don't know we don't know. 
So as uh, mentioned in the literature, we will we operate under bounded rationality. So knowing that we have these disadvantages and weaknesses as humans, we should still try our best to make sense of uh, every new event or um, or crisis that might occur. And the next step uh, in this process, I would say, is to take different perspectives. And of course, part of it is to be open to listen and to take in new information, even if this information doesn't necessarily agree with what we already believe and think about. But it's also important to try to engage with opposing perspectives and narratives that are um, either different or completely uh, opposite from what we already think and, and to question our own. Uh, and by just revisiting our own perspectives, then we have um, then we can have more informative uh, decision, informed decisions, but also more well-run understanding of what's happening. And the underlying uh, message here is to embrace complexity and to, to keep in mind that things are never black or white and, or right or wrong. Uh, it's important in this process also to ask the right questions. So when something new has occurred, it's important to ask what is it, who or what has caused it, who is being mostly affected by it, um, what were some strategies that were used in the past that we can bring in, um, in this case, to, to better uh, handle it this time? And um, I'll mention here now a few, um, a couple of research insights from my PhD research, uh, which I finished uh, three years ago. So for my PhD, I looked into, I focused on Athens and Berlin during um, the so-called refugee crisis period of 2015-2017. And I, uh, the question I was trying to answer is how do those at the front lines of migration management make decisions under conditions of high uncertainty? And to do that, I conducted uh, about 150 interviews with the uh, frontline workers and ac different actors uh, in the field uh, who were delivering services to asylum seekers and refugees. This could be uh, legal assistance, um, care work, um, asylum services. And uh, there were a lot of um, conclusions to be drawn there. Uh, one of the things I emphasized was the importance of identities when it comes to making decisions under conditions of high uncertainty. And one particular example I'd like to use here uh, that relates to sense-making is how do we engage with the other? So by speaking to the people on the ground, uh, one idea, one, one thing that, one thorny issue that came to surface was that even though the people who were willing and had chosen to help um, asylum seekers and refugees at the time were generally very open-minded and liberal people in terms of values, a lot of the people they were helping, uh, they came from parts of the world uh, where they had more traditional and conservative understandings of gender and gender roles and, and, and other um, values in general. So this uh, created kind of a gap between them in terms of communication and also some, some practical issues about, for example, whether uh, girls should be doing sports or not. Uh, and this created difficulties. And different uh, frontline actors at the time responded in different ways. And what I found was the most effective and efficient way to, to tackle this difference was when it was conceptualized as something changeable. So they would say things like, oh, here in Germany too, or here in Greece too, uh, a few decades ago, people were thinking 
uh, more traditionally and more uh, conservatively compared to today. So traditional um, gender roles were more prevalent back then. Um, now they've changed. So these people are here today. Maybe they will also change in a few years. It doesn't matter that now we think differently. So the key message of this example is that we need to embrace change and sometimes change and sometimes embracing change could be a vehicle for connection and for also um, succeeding in, in whatever task uh, we find challenging. Um, the third aspect here that I would like to talk about is response. Um, and of course, it's important to keep in mind that every situation is different and there is no one size fits all. Every context calls for different responses and every person and organization is affected differently by different events. But I will still try to bring up a couple of general principles that could be applicable across contexts. And the first one here is the idea of pragmatism. And by that, I mean to be able to take uh, practical steps um, to, to solve problems, uh, even though we might face difficulties such as lack of resources, um, um, lack of information, time pressure, increased workload. Uh, an example I can bring on this one is from asylum officers uh, making asylum decisions in Athens at the time, uh, where they were operating under particularly challenging conditions. They were uh, lacking in terms of infrastructure. Their offices were in prefabricated buildings. There were a lot of new hires uh, because there was an unprecedented amount of asylum uh, claims at the time, uh, and which means that they did not have experience and know-how yet on how to handle the situation. And also there were new flows of, of asylum seekers from countries that we didn't necessarily have before. So there was no existing knowledge. And the way they responded in that occasion was by uh, using innovation and collaboration. So they created uh, new databases with asylum decisions and explanations for each case. Um, they worked together, they shared information with each other, and they also explored new legal pathways for um, meeting the needs of, of those asylum seekers that were not necessarily, um, that were kind of falling through the cracks at the time. Um, so that's an example of kind of using practical and pragmatic solutions to kind of getting the job done. And then a similar good example I could bring from, uh, from Berlin uh, for, for the second principle I'd like to discuss, which is behavior adjustment and, and the idea that we need to, uh, to change what we've already always been doing when um, the situation calls for it. Um, so at the time in Berlin, they were um, kind of, distinct lines between different sectors. So it was the public sector, there was some contracting, so there were some services delivered by the private sector, and there were a lot of NGOs um, belonging, let's say, to the third sector. And there was not much, necessarily much collaboration between these different sectors. Uh, but as the, the need for new services, I'd weighted the supply quite a, quite a lot. Uh, these actors uh, had to manage um, new ways, find new ways to manage the new problem. So one of the things they did is forge bridges between uh, different sectors. And there was the, the, the collaboration between them became a lot more intense. There was a network created or what I've called a community of practice at the time. 
And this was really, really helpful and efficient in enriching um, um, beneficiaries and again, getting the job done. And lastly, um, the third principle I'd like to discuss here is the idea of resilience. Um, I have met in different parts of my life, a lot of successful people. And usually none of these people have become successful because they found things easy throughout their lives. There are people who have failed. Um, they failed again and again. They felt better every time and eventually uh, they managed to succeed in whatever they're doing. Um, so having resilience and keep going when, uh, when the going is tough is important. And I'll bring here an example of a recent study um, we're running on, with my colleagues on um, Senegal or migrant returnees in West Africa and particularly in Senegal. Um, so there are, these are people who have uh, attempted to migrate usually irregularly to Europe. Uh, a lot of them has man have managed to cross the sea. Um, some of them have not uh, gone beyond Africa. They've just traveled within different parts of Africa. They had very traumatic journeys in the way. And some of them have chosen to return because um, the things were not going as they were hoping in terms of uh, doing well professionally and um, gaining money to, to help their families back home. Or, or they have been deported in some cases. And in either, in either case, going back to their own home communities, it's very challenging. It's, quite, it's considered stigmatizing. People have high expectations and people who return empty-handed kind of fail to meet these expectations. So um, it's not an easy situation, but we did come across individuals who had returned. Um, not only had they managed to overcome the stigma of, of empty-handedness and uh, the, the, the difficulty of having experienced a, a traumatic journey many times, uh, but also they managed to become community leaders uh, and to, to influence people in positive ways, to influence their community, to be the people who, to whom people look up to and ask advice. And there are different angles to look at this. Um, sometimes it, it, there's more nuance because these people work for international organizations that are internationally funded. Uh, but for the purposes of this talk, I wanna highlight the importance of resilience and the importance of, keep, keep, of continuing to, um, to persist even things are not going well. And um, the fourth and final aspect uh, I'd like to bring here is the importance of learning. Uh, this means to ask what has happened or maybe what has not happened and why that's the case. And to understand uh, and to draw conclusions that would be helpful in the future. And here's another uh, cliche that I think it's really helpful in this occasion is the idea of learning from our mistakes and not repeating them. And what I would also like to add is even better to learn from the mistakes of others and not repeating them. Um, so going back to the so-called refugee crisis of 2015, 2017 in Europe, even though I previously mentioned a couple of shining examples of, of situations that were well handled, uh, there were a lot, also a lot of situations that were very poorly handled, but both at the local level and at the national level and at the EU level. And uh, they were um, 
people who became even more vulnerable uh, after reaching Europe. There are people who um, took months and months until they managed to get access to claim asylum. It, uh, the people who lived in uh, terrible conditions for a long time. Uh, there were a lot of problems and a lot of and a lot of lessons to be learned from that experience. Um, even, of course, the very fact that they were now, uh, after several years of being at the front lines, there were a lot of individuals and organizations who were there. They Just by doing that, they have gained some experience and some know-how, especially for countries that were not traditionally considered host migration countries, such as Greece. Um, there has also been time since then to build capacity both in terms of material resources, but also in terms of human resources. Um, there's an opportunity to build further local international collaboration. And at the individual level, and having all of the above in mind, uh, people could be more ready and more flexible and have uh, put together a tool, um, tool set and the skills to respond better at the, at the next similar situation. Um, again, we don't know the extent to which these lessons have been learned. Uh, but for example, with the, the recent wave of refugees from Ukraine, uh, it seems so far that there has been a faster response, a bit more coordinated response from the EU. Um, and people were processed faster and were able to um, work towards integration at a, like sooner than the, than the previous um, waves in 2015-17 did. And of course, I understand that has to do with other factors as well, uh, such as EU-Russia relations. Uh, but it does, for now, even though it remains to be seen, it gives a glimpse of hope uh, that some lessons at least have been learned. Uh, but always the question is, when an event or a crisis has occurred, and especially when it has finished, it is to think about what we can learn because this is exactly what will prepare us for the next uh, possible event, but also increase our awareness, that, uh, that which is the first step I was talking about. Um, so just last week, I was uh, browsing the websites of different international organizations. And for instance, the World Bank, uh, one of the titles you can see there is that there's a risk for global recession in 2023, which is rising. Um, the World Health Organization is talking about a multi-country outbreak of monkeypox. And the UNHCR is highlighting the South Sudan refugee crisis. And the reason I'm mentioning these examples is to say that there will be more turbulent times ahead. And these are global events that we might think they're affecting us or not affecting us um, enough in the near future. Uh, but these are things to keep in mind and, and to be alert about because um, they could affect us more than we think. So just to recap, um, I talked about four main aspects of managing transition turbulent times. The first one was anticipation. So becoming aware of what's happening globally but also where we stand in relation to key issues and having expectations accordingly and being ready and flexible uh, conceptually to respond to this. The second aspect I talked about was the idea of sense-making. And I talked about healthy skepticism and the importance of distinguishing facts from opinions, of, uh, the importance of accepting reality, but also 
the importance of remaining open and, and taking the perspective of the other, uh, of the opposite narrative, whatever that is, and overall embracing complexity and the idea that there is always uh, good and bad uh, in either side. Uh, next, I talked about response strategies, the importance of finding pragmatic solutions under limited information or um, even um, lack of policy um, specific protocols or lack of resources. Uh, being able to adjust our behavior and change ourselves within the situation is also um, key here, but also remaining resilient when things are not going well. Finally, um, I cannot stretch enough the importance of learning from crisis, uh, the importance of reflecting of what has happened and why, evaluating the situation, um, learning from our mistakes uh, and be ready for, for what comes next because they most likely will be more turbulent times ahead. Um, thank you very much for your time. Um, and I'm looking forward to your questions and continue our discussion uh, together. Lovely. Thank you so much, Katarina. That was really interesting. Lots of takeaways from that, not just kind of in relation to, to migration, but also just general decision making in times of change, which, you know, I can I can really relate to um, from a management and decision making perspective. So hopefully everyone really enjoyed that. Um, Katarina, Holly, Holly has just asked um, if we wanted to find out more about the topics you've spoken on today, where would you advise that we that we go? Um, well, like I said, I drew for two main sources of information. The one is my own research, which you can find, I guess, my thesis on LSE library. Uh, I have three articles already published, if you uh, could perhaps Google my name. Uh, but also a lot of the key principles are, are things we discussed in the LSE online course on risk and crisis management. So I would welcome you to take this course and, and join us uh, um, at the next, uh, next time it's being offered. Great, thank you. Um, do keep your questions coming into, into the Q&A um, chat there. We have another one from Fivos. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Um, I'm wondering what you think can encourage resilience, especially in situations like the ones you described of migrants who overcome stigma, but also in broader terms when it comes to situations of crisis. Um, I want to make sure I understand the question correctly. Is the question about where we draw from resilience to, to make sure we have, we build resilience. Yes, I think. Um, yes. Um, encouraging resilience. Yeah. That's a very good question and a very difficult question to answer. And because it's, it's very individual, I'd say, and it's not easy. I think the, the main thing that comes to my mind is to be very resourceful and to have hope. Um, so, so the people that, so for the purposes of our research of the project I mentioned, we have talked both to people who returned and become community leaders and people who returned and have not engaged in, uh, in, in similar roles. And of course, it's a matter of opportunity as well. Some people did not come across this opportunity, but they were the people who did take on these roles generally had a more positive outlook and uh, we're hoping that things will turn out well in the end. Uh, 
again, this is not panacea because uh, it is really a matter of luck as well a lot of the times um, because this opportunity came their way. Uh, oftentimes, it's just a matter of building resilience of, of, over time as well and going from event to event and having learned lessons and having uh, this faith that in the end things will work out. I, I'm, I'm understanding, I mean, I have to say here that these are quite general remarks and um, these are things I generally think about, but it really, really, really depends on the context and the specific situation. Right. Okay, um, another question we have. Looking at the recent tragic events in Greece with the migrants, in that situation, do you think the response to the events was drawing on learnings from past mistakes? That is a very political <laughs> I'm, of course, not going to defend the government in any way. It's a very tragic event. Um, the priority is to save as many lives as possible, although it's not looking very hopeful at the time. Um, at the moment, I, I cannot say that this, uh, this definitely doesn't show that um, lessons have been learned. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Um, Carlos has asked, what can we do with so much political instability? What is reality? What in reality is a world flooded with fake news? I think that's meant to be. Yeah, that's a discussion I actually had a lot with my students in the past term. Um, and I meant to mention this uh, during my talk and I forgot. So thank you. It's the importance of um, the, the important role of social media is something I didn't mention, um, especially in the spread of fake news. I understand that as technology advances, it's become, maybe it's becoming harder and harder to distinguish reality from, from fake news, but also it makes the need all more um, significant. And I, I'm kind of optimistic in terms of the younger generations being more tech savvy and being able to distinguish uh, between what is real and what isn't. Uh, and perhaps that's something we should also have in the school curriculum in the, in the coming years. But it, I think it, it, we all can agree that this is a need that it's becoming more and more obvious as time passes. Thank you. Um, okay, I have another one just in. You seem to have looked into the outcome level of migration, but not the root causes. The permanent solution can only be found if we understand and address root causes. What is your opinion? Hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say I only look at outcome because I did mention in the very beginning the issue of anticipation and, and the situation in the Sahel region, for instance. So that's definitely one of the root causes. There are various root causes, of course. Uh, but for instance, in the example I used in terms of climate change, um, that is something that governments could um, could do about could do something about um, to to make it less severe or less. Um, I don't know, to, to contain the impact, I guess, of, of climate crisis, of climate change. Um, I'm, I'm aware there are different routes 
of of uh, people, lots of causes of migration. People move for different reasons. Um, extreme poverty, political instability, conflict are, um, of course, things we should be doing something about. And um, I cannot answer for world leaders, but I agree with you that it should be a priority to address the, the root causes of migration. Absolutely. And I think it's worth pointing out, I'm sure there's lots more Katarina could say if um, she had a bit longer than 35 minutes. So, um, yeah. Okay, next question. We have another one. Are you aware of transition psychology perspectives on coping with trauma, loss and change? The inherent human capacity to adapt constructively to trauma and change. Can you say anything about this? No, that sounds fascinating. I would love to learn more about this. I have some just some basic awareness of social psychology, but I don't know uh, more on this particular topic. And um, yes, please feel free to contact me or send me an email to share more on this topic with me. I'd be uh, very interested in, in learning as well. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I think, is that all of the questions we've got for now? Do um, post your questions into the Q&A box if there's any more that we haven't yet addressed. I'll give you a few minutes. I'm sure there's lots. Yeah, and maybe I, I finished my talk a bit a few minutes sooner than was initially planning. I was thinking maybe we'd have more time for discussion afterwards. Yes, people normally like time to ask questions it normally just gives people of uh people just take a few minutes to build up the courage to post their questions you're getting a lot of um compliments your presentation was crisp and clear <laughs> that's very much appreciated thank you okay i don't think anything else is coming through um Oh, one more. Um, can you speak some more about your next plans in terms of your research? Um, okay, sure. Um, so the, the the project in Senegal is the most recent one. Uh, we were conducting field work until January this year. Um, there were a lot of difficulties. It's uh, quite more challenging um, to conduct fieldwork in Africa compared to Europe, Europe. and of, of course, one of the reasons is the, the language differences. A lot of people who only speak local languages, so we needed the help of translators in some occasions. Um, it's also practically a little more difficult to, to locate people when uh, in places where there are no addresses, for example. Um, so this is where we are still. Uh, we have some preliminary findings. You could probably find a blog on this topic that just came out yesterday at the uh, European Institute's uh, uh, blog, um, Europe BP. And uh, I, we're still in the process with my colleague, colleagues, Nora Ratzman and Julia Steer in uh, analyzing the data we have collected uh, and seeing where we go from there. Um, well, I didn't talk about this during the, during the event so much, but there are different nuances in the dynamic where a lot of times these migrant attorneys uh, work for organizations that are funded from the EU. And, um, and a lot of the times the message they're called to spread is that migration is dangerous. Um, and there are a lot of um, <clears throat> details about to what extent this message is being spread and is being 
uh, accepted by the audience. So we, in the next few months, we're planning to um, to look further into this and hopefully um, to write something and publish something um, later this year. Great. And I suppose um, in, in making kind of direct comparisons uh, to like previous research, it can take quite a long period of time, right, for another kind of crisis to come around and to be able to compare how a government has responded um, relative to the to the one before. I know your research was on Athens and Berlin, I think it was, but, you know, we could be waiting a long time to make direct comparisons and see if um, those governments have, have learned particularly from their own mistakes. Um, Katarina, what what do you think we can do or should be doing to encourage governments to learn from their, their previous mistakes? I know often there's people have got a short memory, right? And we come out of a pandemic and I'm sure by the time there's an, another one, I don't know that um, we can expect them to, to look back that far and, and learn from those mistakes. What do you think we can do there? Okay, I, I'm, I'm going to start responding to this by saying that I'm someone who is particularly interested in the implementation level of policy. And that's because I... Um, I know there are a lot of gaps in terms of policy and practice uh, in different countries. Uh, and, and I was quite curious to understand why these gaps exist. And having focused so much and for so long on what actually happens on the ground um, and how policies are being implemented, um, how services are being delivered, what are the challenges that people on the ground face? Because one of the things that I observed and I thought was interesting in my research is that especially in times of crisis when things are uncertain, um, governments don't like to take difficult decisions. And which means practically that the people on the ground are the ones who have a disproportional weight in their shoulders um, uh, to, carry, to carry these difficult decisions. Um, and I think if there was a lesson to be learned there for governments is to listen to the people on the ground because they are in the front lines and they're the ones um, seeing and facing and handling the most difficult situations and events. And that's the case, of course, in the so-called refugee crisis, but it's, it could also be the case uh, with the handling of the pandemic. Uh, the government should listen more to the nurses and to the doctors, and, and um, there should be direct lines of communication. And these are the people who should be able to somehow influence policy more. Um, that's That's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, okay, a question specifically on migration, I think. Do you have any comments on how Europe, the US and the UK will be affected by the migrations resulting from the conflicts in the Middle East? I don't have any comments on that. Um, I mean, in principle, we know that these countries, these regions mentioned, are the ones that, um, that have there are hosts to a lot of uh, um, asylum seekers and migrants. They're also the places where a lot of potential migrants from different parts of the world wish to go to. Um, so the, the, the reason I cannot answer this directly is because Middle East is not of my, one of my areas of expertise. So I don't know enough of, of the details and, and the smaller things happening. I understand um, the situation in Afghanistan is very vulnerable. Um, Syria hasn't gotten much better and Lebanon is very unstable, but I cannot um, say specifically the connections, but I will um, say that it is an area where people will 
probably continue to try to migrate in the in the next few years. And um, UK, the US, Europe would be uh, regions where people these people would be really willing and interested going towards. And of course, the the issue of of uh, smuggling comes in picture there, because that's um, um, that's a very thorny issue that it's worth discussing in a different talk. Yeah, we're coming at you with a wide range of questions today. Um, okay, next one. Somebody has asked, are there any techniques you would recommend on an individual level? I presume decision-making techniques, I'm guessing. Um, I I'm not sure what the question is. Yeah, I think we need some clarification on that one. Yeah, the person who wrote this could uh, follow it up and, and say spe specifically what they mean. I should probably say that some of the things I mentioned, um, apart from drawing from, from the class I mentioned and my own research, um, would also be from my own experience, having uh, worked in different countries and different environments. Um, so the recent years I've lived in, um, in, in the UK, in Greece, in Senegal, I previously lived in the US, and I've worked both in academia and in, uh, in more bureaucratic positions, uh, but also in, in the past I've worked in sports. So this, I have transitioned between a lot of different roles over the years. And some of this, I would say, um, the things I discussed today would be things that I, that would also be life lessons throughout my own experiences too. There's a question, clarification there? No, I don't think so. Um, discussion, maybe. Exactly. Perhaps okay. discussion, that's a good thing. Yes, maybe you've answered the question already. Brilliant. Okay, so we are going to wrap things up there. Thank you so much to our speaker, Katerina, for a fascinating talk, um, which I hope everybody has enjoyed. Um, and thank you very much to the, the audience for joining as well. There are still some very exciting events coming up tomorrow, the last day of the festival. So please do check those out at lsc.ac.uk forward slash festival. Um, Holly is also sharing the link in the chat box. Um, and you can find out more about our LSC online courses via the link on the slide and also in the chat box. Um, risk and crisis management, Katerina works on, but there are lots of others as well. So please do take a look. Thank you, everyone, and have a lovely weekend. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.